Uh, good morning to each and every one. We just sang uh, these words. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. What is an Ebenezer? <laughs> what was the hymn writer talking about? Uh, what are we talking about? Uh, normally when we sing that song, we, we change the words. I know it's anathema to some, but we do. Uh, normally we sing, here I raise to thee an altar. But today we decided to change them back. Uh, here I raise mine Ebenezer. Because in actual fact, that phrase, here I raise to thee an altar, isn't what the hymn writer was expressing with the words, here I raise mine Ebenezer. He has something specific in view. And when we sing uh, that wonderful song, when we utter and pray those beautiful words, we have something very particular in view. What? We find the answer in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And with this chapter, uh, we come to an end. We come to the conclusion of our study of the life of Samuel. 1 Samuel chapters. 1 through 7. Samuel does not disappear from the book. He does not disappear from the narrative. His death isn't recorded until chapter 25. But here's the thing. Samuel is no longer the central figure. When we take First and Second Samuel as one book, which originally they were, the book of Samuel, we discover that there are three central figures. Samuel, Saul, David. Samuel is the last of the judges. And with the passing of Samuel, we have the passing of the days of the judges. To be replaced with the, day, to be replaced with the days of the kings. And so Samuel gives way to Saul. And then Saul is going to give way to David. And those three figures are the subject, the object, the content of the books of First and Second Samuel. So with the conclusion of chapter 7, yes, Samuel's still living. And Samuel still appears here and there in the narrative. He actually anoints Saul king. He anoints David king. But he is no longer the central figure. His time has come. His days are passing. The judges, that entire era that encompassed 300 years, is quickly drawing to a close. And we are entering the age, the era of the kings. And so follow along, I invite you, as I read this chapter for us, and we come to an end, we come to a conclusion of our study of the life of Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines." So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. 
and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and, called, and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For here he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. What's the context? I think we need to begin with a a quick review, don't we? Set the context, the stage for what we've just read in this chapter. God's intent, important for us to grasp this right at the outset. God's intent in these chapters is to deliver his people Israel from their oppressors, from their enemies, the Philistines. How is he going to do that? He is going to deliver them through Samuel's prophetic ministry. Because through Samuel's prophetic ministry, that is through Samuel's preaching, he is going to bring the Israelites to a place of repentance. And before he delivers them from their enemies, they must repent. They must be brought to repentance. And so God is going to bring them there. He is going to do so through Samuel's preaching. Here's the problem. Samuel is appointed a prophet. Samuel goes out to preach. We read this back in chapter 4. Here's the problem. Here's the issue. The Israelites aren't listening. The Israelites have turned a deafened ear to the word of the Lord. They are not interested. And so before God can bring them to repentance, before they can respond to Samuel's preaching, God must get their attention. He needs to rattle their cage, so to speak. Well, How does he do that? In chapter 4, we discover that he does two things. First of all, the Israelites suffer a terrible military defeat. 34,000 Israelite soldiers dead on the battlefield after a war, a conflict with the Philistines. Secondly, God gets their attention through a terrible loss. What's the loss? The ark of God is captured by the Philistines. And the Philistines take it away into their land, into their territory. Through these actions, through these losses... Terrible military defeat. Terrible moral loss. The ark is gone. God is declaring to Israel 
a very simple truth, and he is, he is literally hitting them between the eyes with it. It is this. The glory of God has departed from Israel. He needs to awaken them as to their desperate situation. He needs to awaken them as to their spiritual condition. He must stir in them this recognition, this acknowledgement that they have abandoned God. They have wandered far from God. And before they will repent through Samuel's preaching, he gets their attention. Now the ark has been sent back to the land of the Israelites. Now God has their attention. Now they are almost ready, almost ready to hear Samuel's preaching. And now they are almost ready to repent. That's the context. That's the setting for what we have here in chapter 7. Now how we're going to analyze the content of chapter 7 is very simple. I'm going to toss out four words corresponding to four blanks in bold print on the sermon notes. Just toss out four words, each word corresponding to several verses, a section in this chapter. If we grasp that word, we'll understand the content of what's going on here, what's unfolding before our eyes as we read. Based on each word and based on what's transpiring in the text, in this story, in this narrative, I'm going to affirm one lesson. So that's how we're going to proceed. Four words, boom, 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 one, two, three, four, in order. And a lesson, a tremendous truth, principle, based on on each. The first word is this. It applies to the first two verses. Silence. Silence. Begin again at verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, And they consecrated his son, Eliezer, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. So far, so good. We have no problems with that. It's a green light. Move forward. That's good on the part of the Israelites. Verse 2, big problem arises. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, note the next phrase, a long time passed. How long? The author doesn't leave us in any doubt. Some 20 years. These are not throwaway details. These details are extremely significant. They are conveying to us a reality, an all-pervasive mindset within the Israelites, among the Israelites. A long time passed. How long? After the ark came back. 20 years. What happens during these 20 years? All the house of Israel lamented after Lord. Now we read that and we think, fantastic. Things are looking up. Not so. Not so. Understand, and I'm really going to seek to drive this home by God's help today. Understand, friends, lamenting for sin and repenting from sin are miles apart. The nation of Israel, the house of Israel, lamented after the Lord. Why? Their lives are a mess. Their lives are an absolute mess. They suffered that military defeat. They they lost the ark of God. They're still living under the oppression, the boot, the heel of the Philistines, a foreign nation. They are suffering economically. They are struggling politically, morally, religiously. Their society is marked by chaos. Their lives are a mess. 
And therefore they lament. They lament the pain. They lament the suffering. They lament the discomfort. They wish things were different. They realize the glory of God has departed from Israel. They realize they are living with the consequences of their sin. They realize they have made an absolute and utter mess of things. And they lament. But there is an all-important detail absent from the verse. The detail is this. They don't do anything. They don't do anything. All they do is lament. They lament after the Lord. And as a result, for 20 years, there is nothing but silence on God's part. Now, here's the lesson. Here's the truth, all essential, that I want us to grasp from these two verses. The danger, here is the lesson, friends, the danger of merely lamenting. The danger of merely, merely lamenting. Let me just be right up front. Uh, Lots of people lament. Just about everybody laments. When we lament, uh, we feel the pain, right? When we lament, we recognize the mess. Uh, We see the chaos. Uh, We lament the broken marriage. Uh, We lament the rebellious children. Uh, We lament the abuse and the addictions. We lament eh, the idols, although we don't necessarily acknowledge them as such. We lament the consequences of our sin. We lament the bad, foolish choices and decisions we made in the past. We lament what our lives have become. Lots of people lament. Understand, friend, Esau lamented. King Saul lamented. King Ahab lamented. Judas lamented. But none of them repented. None of them were prepared to make a change. When we lament, all we do, and lots of people, most people do this, they acknowledge that there are things in our lives that we wish were different. There are things I wish I could go back and change. My life is a mess. The walls are caving in around me. Everything is falling apart. I feel like I'm just on this downward spiral, and I lament. I feel the pain, and I feel the sorrow. But lamenting because of sin. Friends, get it, please, is miles apart from repenting of sin. Now, that is something some unbelievers here need to hear. There are unbelievers here this morning. I'm not going to mix my words, and I'm not putting anybody on the spot. And and, and I don't say this. I hope I don't come across as harsh. I'm not speaking, trying to be harsh. I'm speaking out of desperation. There are some unbelievers here who have been lamenting a long time. That's sad, but that's all you've ever done. Lamented. My life is a mess. Boy, I wish things were different. I wish that that never happened. I wish that could happen. I wish someone would remove that. Yeah, I I really get it. God is distant. God is removed. I get it. I've made poor. I feel it. I lament. Friend, here's the question. Are you ready to repent? Not merely lament. Are you ready to 
Repent. And you know something, friends? There are some believers here today who need to hear this. Uh, Some believers who have been lamenting a long time. Lamenting such and such a circumstance. Lamenting such and such a situation. Grieving over what can only be described as a sterile spiritual life. Uh, Lamenting the fact that they're not walking with the Lord. Lamenting the fact that it's having negative repercussions in their personal life, their marriage, in their family, in their relationships. Lamenting the fact that they come here Sunday after Sunday, but it's just the same thing Monday to Saturday. Same thing, same thing, same thing, same thing. And you're lamenting it. You feel the pain. You feel the discomfort. And you are lamenting. My question to you is the same. Are you willing to repent? The nation of Israel lamented for 20 years. But in all that time, understand this, this is pivotal. They were not willing, nor were they ready to change anything. That's the lesson. The danger of merely lamenting. Second word I want to toss out there is this. You could probably guess it based on verses 3 through 6. Repentance. Look at verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, so 20 years have passed, they've been lamenting. So what is Samuel, the prophetic ministry, preaching the word of the Lord? What does he finally say in verse 3? Look, if you are returning to the Lord, let's get beyond lamenting. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. And serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. In the Hebrew text, the word for repentance is shub. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Probably not. But it's shub. We find it for the first time way back in Genesis 3. Interesting. After the fall. And God says to to man, says to woman, as a result of the fall, the curse being brought upon all creation, uh, you are dust. And to dust you shall return. That's the word. To repent means to return. means to turn around. It means to go back. And so we're heading in one direction. This is the essence of repentance. There we go. Point A, point B. We are heading in this direction. The Bible makes it clear. We are moving away from God. And we are moving toward what? We are drawn toward what? We are inclined toward what? The idols of our hearts. When we repent, what do we do? We make a U-turn, three-point turn. I don't know how we get the ship around, but we turn it around 180 degrees. And we're no longer going away from God toward the idols of our heart. We are turning away from our idolatry, principally our self-love, and we are turning back to whom? To God. That is the essence of repentance. Samuel sums it up wonderfully in two truths. Again, drawing your attention to verse 3. If you are returning... Okay, enough of the lamenting. 20 years, enough is enough. Come on, let's let's get right to the quick here. If you are returning, if you finally get it, if you're beyond simply lamenting the negative consequences of your sin and the mess you've made of your life, if you're really truly prepared to get right with the Lord, it's time to return. Here are two things you must do. Number one, put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you. You are an idolatrous people. You are an idolatrous nation. You worship your idols. You love your idols. If you're truly returning, put them away. And here's the second thing you must do. 
you must direct, still in verse 3, your heart to the Lord and serve him only. That's repentance. The lesson we derive from these verses is as follows. We see the essence of truly repenting. So in the first two verses, we saw the danger of merely lamenting. Now in verses 3 through 6, we see the essence of truly repenting. I want to quote from a little book written by Terry Johnson. He penned the following. If our passion, please heed these words. If our passion, our focus, our priority is self or pleasure or sports or things or anything besides God, then we have misunderstood the meaning of life. We are still lost. To know God at all is to passionately long for Him and His righteousness. You see, when we repent, we follow in the Israelites' footsteps. We return to the one from whom we have wandered. And in so doing, we put away the idols in our hearts and we give our heart entirely to God. See, friend, that that is the key difference between lamenting and repenting. You see, the person who is lamenting is merely expressing their displeasure as their life falls apart. They're merely expressing the discomfort of a messy life. They're merely expressing the displeasure of experiencing chaos. They lament it all. They lament the consequences of sin. They lament what's happening in their lives. But here's the thing. They are not prepared to deal with the root cause. They are not prepared to deal with their idolatry. Yes, I wish things were different. I wish someone would fix this. I wish I could change that. Looking ahead, I wish this was just removed from my life. But the blinders are on. And there's an unwillingness to recognize what lay at the root of that mess. It is idolatry. And when we move from merely lamenting to repenting, we understand that at the heart of the issue is this fact. We have wandered from God, burdened by our sin, weighed down by the ugliness of our idolatry and our self-love. We turn. We turn the boat around 180 degrees and we begin to head in the other direction. This is wonderfully illustrated in Pilgrim's Progress. You have those two men, for those of you who are familiar with the book, those of you who aren't, this this will make sense. In, In this book, John Bunyan describes the journey of Christian from the city of destruction to the celestial city, his heavenly home. But when Pilgrim leaves the city of destruction, he has someone with him. His name is Pliable. Pliable and Pilgrim are walking along, both heading to the celestial city both heading to glory, heading to heaven. They soon fall into a slew of despond, the quagmire, the mud, the experience of affliction and doubt and despair and problems and issues and all of these things. Finally, they get themselves out of the quagmire. What does Pliable do? He goes back to the city of destruction. Why? The answer is found in what he says to Pilgrim, while they're still struggling and languishing in the muck and the mire, he says, is this the happiness you promised me? 
this isn't what I signed on the dotted line for. I thought God was just going to solve all my problems. Boom, 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 one after another. I thought all my dreams were going to come true. I thought this was going to be a happy, clappy life that I would now live now. and Just one mountaintop to the other mountaintop in the muck and the mire. Is this the happiness you promised me? You see, pilgrim and pliable are in very different conditions. What's the difference? You see, pilgrim has a burden on his back. Pliable has none. Pliable has no sense of his sin. Pliable has no awareness of his idolatry. Pliable is just looking for something he thinks will be good, make him happy. What's pilgrim looking for? A savior. What is pilgrim doing? He is repenting. He is in the way of repentance. He isn't merely lamenting. I've got a ton of problems. They're mounting every day. And yeah, if God can help me, fine, I'll believe in him. No, that's not pilgrim. Pilgrim understands the issue is this burden on his back, the weightiness of his sin, the ugliness of his idolatry. His problem is his self-love, and he is in the way of repentance that will eventually bring him where? To Calvary's cross. Are we getting the idea? Oh, how essential this is. Again, I've said it. I just said it a few moments ago. I'll say it again. I, I pray. I worry about this sometimes. I hope I'm not coming across as being harsh. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be harsh. I am not trying to chastise anyone. But out of desperation, I say it. I say this. Out of love, I pray, I say this. The number of pliables who think they are heading toward the celestial city, yet in actual fact, all they are doing is lamenting. Oh, how we must forsake our idolatry. How we must understand what is at the root of our problem. Until we are thirsty, really thirsty, we will never drink of Christ. Until we are hungry, spiritual hunger, we will never feed on Christ. Until we are weary, and heavy laden, we will never rest in Christ. Until we are a battered reed, easy to break, a smoldering wick, easy to extinguish, we will never repent and turn to Christ. Now let me add a word here, a very important word. Um, when you think of repentance and, your, and the baggage we have, our sinfulness, very important for us to grasp this, lest we fall in, into despair. Um, when we come to God in repentance, that is, when we turn like the Israelites turn here in 1 Samuel 7, we, we turn from the idols of our hearts, 180 degrees, and we give our hearts to, to God alone. Understand this, friend. God never slams the door in our face. Never. One of the most painful uh, experiences we can endure in life is having, our, having the door slammed in our face. What do I mean by that? I mean, one of the most painful experiences I've ever been through, and I'm sure many in this room can empathize, and some of you, sadly, if you haven't to this point, you undoubtedly will, is seeking to reconcile with that individual who does not want to be reconciled with. You ever been there? Seeking to make peace, seeking to come to terms with. 
You know you've sinned. You know they've sinned. There's a need to reconcile. You want to reconcile. You're humbling yourself. You're reaching out the olive branch. You want to make things right. You want to do what is right before God's word. You want to reconcile, and the door is slammed in your face. There is no more painful experience going than that. But friend, nothing to fear when we come to God. When we come to God in brokenness, when we approach God and we are weary and heavy laden, when we approach God hungering and thirsting, thirsting, when we approach God as a battered reed, as a smoldering wick, He will not slam the door in our faces. When we repent and we come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, all we find is boundless mercy. Mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Knowing that God's anger God's wrath, God's judgment turned aside at the cross where the Lord Jesus bore it all for us. Whereby when we come to God through the cross, repenting of our sin, turning from our idolatry, giving our hearts to him, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have this absolute certainty that he receives us and he welcomes us. Why? Oh, get this. The gospel, the gospel isn't us seeking to amass, seeking to accumulate a good record, presenting it to God, and hoping God will look favorably upon us. Did you catch that? That's not the gospel. The gospel, let me repeat it, isn't amassing, accumulating a good record, do the best we can in life, present it to God, and hope it's enough when weighed in the balance. No, the gospel is this, that Christ has amassed a perfect record and that he gives it to us freely when we repent of our sin and believe in him, receiving him as Lord and as Savior. Oh, friends, the essence of truly repenting. Let me ask again and let me be direct. Are you simply a lamenter? I fear it. People in this room have been lamenting for days, weeks, months, dare I say it, years. It is time to repent. It is time to turn. It is time to identify the root of our problems. Turn from our idolatry. Give our hearts to God and come to him through the only means available to us, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me throw out a third word. It's this, deliverance. Based on verses 7 through 11, all Israel is gathered at Mizpah. They have this spiritual revival, right? Salvation, this collective repentance on the part of the nation. They're tearing down their idols, their bales and ashtoreths and other things. They're they're pouring out the water, this sign of, of renewal and repentance and washing and purification. They're fasting, they're confessing their sins. Samuel is judging, Samuel is preaching, his prophetic ministry is full swing, beautiful thing happening. And what happens immediately following? Philistines hear of it. What are the Israelites all doing gathered together at Mizpah? Suddenly the Philistines, the lords of the Philistines, get their armies together collectively. They descend upon the Israelites. In these verses, 7 through 11, the Israelites cry out to God. Samuel intercedes on their behalf. And in that moment of desperation, 
as the shadows creep in and begin to set upon them, as they find themselves in this valley, in this midst of affliction, this this tremendous threat, this tremendous trial, God thunders from heaven above. And the Philistine armies are thrown into confusion. And there's a terrible defeat of the Philistines as the Israelites chase after them, rectifying what had happened 20 years earlier when the Israelites had been defeated by the Philistines on the battlefield. Here's a lesson I want us to draw out of these verses. Very simple. The comfort of simply trusting. So we have the danger of merely lamenting, verses 1 and 2. The essence of truly repenting, verses 3 through 6. And now the comfort of simply trusting. Having repented, having returned, so to speak, to their first love, having turned from their idols and mortified, destroyed those idols, having given their hearts to God, having renewed their faith in God, they now simply trust, crying out to God. Samuel intercedes on their behalf, and God wonderfully, marvelously delivers them from their enemies, delivers them from their affliction. Oh, the comfort of simply trusting. Now, follow my words closely and carefully here. As believers, we have repented. As believers, we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, we have been made one with Christ. He's taken hold of us by the Holy Spirit. We've taken hold of him by faith. We are now members of the family of God, the household of God, the body of Christ. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. And yet here we sojourn as Christians. And here we still confront enemies. And here we still experience daily affliction. Now grasp this. We can pray to our Heavenly Father that he would deliver us out of affliction. We can pray that prayer. And many times God does. At many times God God does deliver us immediately from trouble. Many times he does deliver us immediately from affliction. But he doesn't always lead us out of affliction, does he? But we have this certainty that as members of his household, the day is dawning when all our affliction will be gone. All of our enemies will be finally defeated. We will enter into and embrace that inheritance which is reserved for us in glory. We have that certainty. And we also have this certainty that as we live in anticipation and expectation of that day, that although our enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil at times hound us right now in this life, and although we find ourselves in the midst of adversity, in the midst of affliction, that although God doesn't always choose us to choose to deliver us right now, He always promises to sustain us right now. And so we have the psalmist's beautiful cry. Psalm 119, verse 107. I am severely afflicted, says the psalmist. I am exceedingly afflicted, says the psalmist. Quicken me, O Lord. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. And so, yes, my enemies are oppressing me and closing in. I find myself in the midst of terrible affliction. I am like the mythological figure Atlas with the weight of the world upon my shoulders. My knees are buckling. 
I feel I'm spiraling downward. My spiritual life is waning. It is dissipating. Quicken me, Lord. Revive me, O Lord. Give me life, O Lord. According to your word. Oh, draw me into your word. And through your word, renew in me that sense of wonder of your love. And through your word, renew in me a, a sense of the appreciation and the certainty of your promises. And Lord, as you do that, as you renew in me the wonder of your love and the certainty of your glory, quicken what is waning. Stir up grace within me. Strengthen me. Support me. Encourage me. Carry me through the midst of affliction. Oh, what a wonderful prayer. Oh, what an essential prayer. You know it. I know it. Affliction is a common condition, isn't it? And affliction is a perilous condition. Perilous, why? Because affliction is the means that bitterness uses to kick down the door of our hearts. I'm off on a bit of a tangent here, but stay with me. Affliction is the means that bitterness uses to kick down the door into our hearts. And bitterness, when we succumb to bitterness... In the midst of affliction, it will chew us up and spit us out. I know it's a vulgar thought, and yet it is what it does. Bitterness is a consuming sin. Bitterness is a sin that holds deep within the heart strings, and it, it, and it shades and colors and influences and motivates and twists. Everything is expressed in so many avenues in life. And when we succumb to it in the midst of affliction, we have given an open door to bitterness to wreak havoc and confusion and every kind of disorder in our lives. Herman Neville's, is it? Is that his name? The author of Moby Dick? He gives the uh, powerful illustration of the, of the danger of bitterness as he describes Captain Ahab and his encounter with the great whale. And in that encounter, Captain Ahab loses a leg. And he's languishing between life and death. And he descends below, below deck. And Melville and Moby Dick, in powerful language, describes what happens to Ahab next as follows. For long months, Ahab and anguish lay stretched together in one hammock. Rounding in midwinter that dreary, howling Patagonian cape, then it was that his torn body and gashed soul bled into one another, and so interfusing made him mad. His bitterness consumed him. And once bitterness had a hold of him, off he set in pursuit of Moby Dick, and it cost him his life. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know Exactly what I'm talking about. And friend, it's time to repent. It is time to repent of that bitterness. And it is time to gaze heavenward. And it is time to understand that yes, we experience affliction now. Yes, our, our enemies are many now. And yet the hope of glory is real. The wonder of God's love is real. 
And what a comfort to know we can come before this great God in prayer. And he delivers us. And he sustains us. We used to sing a beautiful little song in church when I was uh, much younger. Now, the words go as follows. Maybe some of you will remember this one. Have we trials and temptations? No, I'm not getting any nods. Listen to these words. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? You should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The comfort of simply trusting. The fourth term. That's the last one I'm going to throw at you. Remembrance. Remembrance. And that gets us into the 12th verse. And look at what we read there. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah. This is after the battle, right? Context. After the battle, they've defeated the Philistines. God has delivered them. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name. There you have it. Remember the song we sang not that long ago? Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. The word Ebenezer simply means stone of memorial. Now what is crucial, what we, what we must grasp is this. It's not the first time we find the word in 1 Samuel. You go all the way back to chapter 4, and we discover there's actually a place called Ebenezer. What happened at this place called Ebenezer? It is where the Israelites were defeated by the Philistines 20 years earlier. And so Samuel takes that word, Ebenezer, where Israel got into this mess to begin with, suffered that initial defeat. The ark of God was captured, symbolizing the fact that God's glory had departed from Israel. He takes that word. I don't think he's rubbing it in their their faces. He's seeking to convey a wonderful, reassuring truth. Ebenezer, here's a stone of memorial that what happened 20 years ago has been undone. That God has now intervened on behalf of his people. He has brought us to that place of repentance. He has renewed the covenant. He has renewed our spiritual strength and vigor. He has turned our hearts and inclined our hearts heavenward. Ebenezer, never forget where you came from. But understand this. He says it right there in the text. Till now, the Lord has helped us. Now there's another subtle truth in that expression there. Till now. The Lord has helped us. Till now, the Lord has helped us. Implying what? If he's helped us this far, he will see us through to the end. If he's brought us to this place, he will finish what he has started in us. Till now, he has helped us. And we have this absolute certainty. And here's this memorial. Till now, he has helped us. We must never forget it as we move forward. That he will continue to help us. Many years ago, 30, 35 years ago, a man named Fred Kelling, a Scotsman, was a missionary in Eastern Europe. He would travel beyond, beyond, behind the Iron Curtain and visit small churches and believers and distribute Bibles and Christian literature. And every three or four years, he would come to North America to visit churches and tell of the Lord's work, what the Lord was doing behind the Iron Curtain. And whenever he came to Markham, where I was living, he would stay in our home. My parents would entertain lots of missionaries, and he would come for two or three weeks as he visited different churches. And I would dutifully surrender my room 
Dr. Fred Kelly. And on one occasion, he had departed, he had left, and I reclaimed my room and walked in there and found this little picture, probably not even worth a dollar, this little picture with this little silver frame around it of this little fishing boat in the midst of a loch in northern Scotland, surrounded by the hills and the shadows and the storm clouds gathering on the horizon with these beautiful little words just penned there, I will guide thee. I still have it on my desk in my office. It's gone with me everywhere I have traveled. I will guide thee. See, it's a memorial. As I remember Calvary's cross, every time I witness a baptism, every time I I celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time I, I remind myself of God's former ways of grace with me, every time I am brought to the cross, I remember that thus far God has helped me and he will guide me. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither, by thy help I've come, and I hope, by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. The danger of merely lamenting, the essence of truly repenting comfort of simply trusting and the importance, friend, of constantly remembering. Our God, we come before you and we praise you. You are great and glorious, enthroned in majesty, high and exalted, the train of your robe filling the temple, the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. And we come Thankful that we do so through the Lord Jesus Christ, who has borne our iniquity and therefore has made peace, has reconciled us to you, whereby we celebrate that there is no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our Father, we pray that that is the experience and reality of everyone gathered here this day, but we fear it is not. We fear there are some here who do not know your Son, We're in various stages of resistance and disobedience and sin and idolatry. As we pray that by the power of your outstretched arm, you would break their hearts, bring them to that place where they realize they have no hope in anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Impress upon them your beauty and the wonder of the gospel. And we ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom and in the name of the one who saved us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.